I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Twenty thirteen was a huge year for religious news and the Godslot was pleased to be involved. The transition of power in the Vatican, church state issues in the United States and religious tension in the Middle East were just a few of the reasons that religion was so often propelled onto the front pages. Here in Ireland, the problem of child abuse was back again. Archbishop Michael Jackson puzzled a lot of people with his remarks on polyester Protestants and after much debate and soul-searching, the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill was enacted by Dáil Éireann, while around the world Pope Francis continued to fascinate, intrigue and above all inspire people of all faiths and none. This is our last programme before Christmas, so we intend being as seasonal as possible. Our first item comes from New York, where one year after Hurricane Sandy, parts of that city are still struggling to cope with the devastation. And while it may have long faded from the news, local Irish charities are still working away quietly to rebuild homes and communities. Our reporter Rona Tarrant visited the New York Irish Centre in Queens, where she found a room full of toys, wrapping paper and even elves and she asked arts and cultural director Jane MacArthur what it was all about. You've just walked into our main hall of New York Irish Centre and today it's turned transformed into a toy factory. And it's our special shoebox toy factory. Um, we have emulated the uh, toy box appeal in Ireland to do our own kind of much smaller version of it. And all the shoeboxes will go into the families of and children of Westchester who still, after one year on, um, are very badly hit from the hurricane. Now, as you can see, we've got certain We've got four, three main departments here. We've got packers, wrappers, stackers. And that's the three types of L's that you have today, see before you. <laughs> now outside, it's the middle of a snowstorm at the moment. It's absolutely freezing outside today, but you still got a good turnout. It's a bit of a winter wonderland, all right. <laughs> but you know, we didn't plan for the snow, but um, our elves are very adaptable. They're able to adapt to the weather and it's not a problem. That's the Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell Chime. This all started like um, last year out of Hurricane Sandy. Uh, the hurricane came in and it left New York in tatters. Once we kind of heard about this, we decided that we needed to do something about it as a community. So the Irish Death Action uh, Committee was then formed. Like all, and this was all six weeks before um, the holidays and the new year and a lot of these places like had like young families and stuff so in the first Irish Day of Action we went out and we cleared up. In the second Irish Day of Action we felt that we needed to bring a more seasonal type of relief um, because young families in particular were really finding the strain and feeling the strain of the holidays and having young kids and no home. And once they put the word out they found huge support and we had boxes Last year, coming in from Texas and um, Arizona, people heard about this and want and started packing the shoeboxes, and they were all making their way to um, New York. Peter Ryan is the Deputy Consulate General of Ireland in New York, who is involved in the rebuilding. And as he explains, this is only part of an ongoing process. Based on the uh, tradition of the metal in Ireland, 
where we where, where we brought over 2,000 volunteers out to the areas that were most affected by uh, Superstorm Sandy to help to rebuild, to clean up, to give some moral support and so on. This time last year we, 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 we built a Santa's factory in a public school 104, which is in the far Rockaways. 80% uh, of the school children in that public school um, lost their homes. And that's already uh, in an area of, uh, I suppose, very challenging economic conditions and circumstances. So we reached out to that school and we've helped that school a little bit and the Irish community has reached out and helped them a little bit. Although, as I mentioned to you earlier, over 90% of the pupils there now would be African-American and Latino. But it has a strong tradition of Irish-American. There's an Irish-American principal, vice-principal, school teachers. If you and I had been there 60 years ago, there would have been all, all Irish-American students as well. But now there isn't. But we wanted to show our solidarity with them. It's a very New York thing that... Uh, you know, this is a mosaic of nationalities here and while geography changes and so on, we're all still part of the one city and one part of the one community. So do you think this is going to continue into next year? Well, it's already continued right throughout the year and really I suppose one of the, one of the things for us was to make sure that people understood that the government of Ireland, the people of Ireland and so on is very grateful for everything that Irish America has done for us. So you think over decades that people in Irish America we're reaching out to home and helping home and so on. And then in January of this year, exactly exactly 11 months ago, um, some of the top Gaelic players in the country stayed, came to Breezy Point, slept on the, on the floor in a firehouse, helped rebuild, helped help that community. And to be honest with you, the moral support was as strong as anything else. So the government was able to support the effort of the Gaelic Players Association to get in and to get involved and we rebuilt a number of community centres um, to make sure that children were able to get access to sport again and so on which is really important for them. We've helped a couple of schools out there, we've helped a number of the volunteer uh, ambulance and fire services with the first point of call for the community. But this community spirit at the Irish Centre here in Queen's reaches as far back as its foundation. It's part community centre, part arts and cultural base at the moment, they're extending the centre to cater for the huge amount of people who pass through the doors. So you're building okay. an extension in here? Yeah, we're building, we just put it in the elevators. We hope to open the elevator in the next, the next few months. There's our elevator shaft going all the way up through the roof. The biggest threat facing seniors is isolation, and we try to provide them a place to come to and socialise. We have a very big programme on Wednesdays, which is we call our lunch club. We also have a program for seniors on Saturday mornings where they can come and mingle and learn computers. They don't need to get jobs, many of them, at this stage, so we're not helping, helping them write resumes. What we're helping them do is communicate you know, via the internet so they can stay in touch with people all over the world. And it's, it's another remarkable program. Paul Finnegan is executive director. In a very short synopsis, we had a wave of Irish came here in the 1980s, okay? And... Normally the Irish used to come here and connect with the labour unions and the church and, and uh, the counties. But in the 1980s, and that's the generation I was in that came here, facing much the same problems that the kids face leaving Ireland at the moment, no jobs, no opportunity, recession, etc. But when they came here, they faced new challenges in that it was very hard to become legal, get legal work. And these, these other institutions, the labour unions, the church and the counties, had there was a bit of a disconnect. So they started to set up Irish centres. And um, so they're dotted around the United States and many of them um, 
survived and thrived, okay? But in this town, uh, there was a priest who had been sent out from Ireland to uh, minister to a broad, diffuse flock of young Irish people and connect with them f from the perspective of a modern Ireland in the 1980s that kind of understood Ireland at the time. And his name was Father Colum Campbell. And for many years, he was pretty much uh, like a, uh, a priest at large in the community. And he made many, many good friends and uh, many um, uh, assisted many people in need, people who were you know, not doing too well, people who had a lot of emotional problems dealing with immigration and loneliness and so on. And over time, he, he realized that the, the New York needed a central community center like they would have in, for example, uh, London or Boston. Are we here? They have them over there. Um, Chicago has one here. So he felt New York needed one, and that's where the idea started. And he was able to rally together some, some businessmen who uh, wanted to give back to the community that basically helped them become successful. And, um, and that's, that's how it started. And those people that he banded together with to, to start off here were, were uh, many of them had come in the 1980s themselves. Uh, some had come a little bit before that. So about 10 years ago, which is around 2003, he was able to get the paperwork together to form the New York Irish Center on paper, but it took him about another two years to to secure a building, which which actually the New York Irish Center purchased this building. So we're, and for two years he renovated it. It was a rundown building, and then he opened his doors here. Opened the doors here in 2005. So we've been up and running doing programs for about eight years now. So that's the the foundation of who we are and our central mission is basically to provide a home for the Irish community in New York City. That report from Rona Tarrant. Good to have you back on the God Slot, Rona. What's it all about? Why are we here? Is there a God? What happens when we die? In this series, I'm talking to public figures about these questions. Like me, None of them claims to be a religious expert, but all of them have, at times, had cause to think about the meaning of life. Well, that's a sound familiar to Sunday night television viewers. And as Christmas gets nearer and we think of suitable gifts for loved ones, books are always acceptable. So if you've enjoyed Gay Burns' television series, The Meaning of Life, you'll probably enjoy having some of the favourite interviews from that series in book form. The book is available, as they say, in all good bookshops, published by Gill and Macmillan. And to review it, we're joined by one of Gay's closest friends in the world of broadcasting, Joe Duffy. Mr Duffy, you're very welcome to the God Slot. Oh, thanks a million. I don't know if Gay would reciprocate that. <laughs> Might not at the end of this review. Well, um, and now let's start by saying this is the kind of thing that Gay just does so well, isn't it? Putting absolutely. people and, at their ease and interviewing them. And I think the book, in fairness, is in one sense a very different product to the television programme and has a different power than the television programme. Radio is one power, intimacy. Television has the pictures and the strength of the sound as well. But the book has a profundity about it and a record about it, which I think is brilliantly exemplified in, in this production. And it's edited really sharply. You don't get the full interview, but you get the sharpness of the interview. Um, also, what you get is a little bit of colour at the beginning of each interview about how they met, where, where the interview took place. Did they wear makeup? 
did Martin Sheen want to go to Clarendon Street Church to Mass? He did, as he always does when he's in Dublin. But he, he skipped it that evening because the, the interview with Gay went on and on. So I, th- I thought to myself, when I read the book, I said, is this just a collection of transcripts? And it's much, much bigger. The power of the written word, I think, is exemplified brilliantly in this production. And also it gives us an insight into Gay that we don't often get in his yeah. in, in his intros. You know, there, there's yeah. a bit of him comes through and not quite what he thought about these people, but thoughts he would have about them. Yeah. And um, also there's little things in the intros, like, for example, Tommy Tiernan, who gives a very, again, profound interview in this book. Tommy, through an intermediary, since Gay approached himself and Roger Childs, the producer, who deserves a lot of credit for this production, the way it's uh, crafted together. But um, Tommy approached them, so there's a, there's, you, you get, that, get that feel off it now. You now know that Tommy wants to be there, even though some of the questions are quite difficult for Tommy. Mary McAleese, when they arrived in the house, and the house taken over by a camera crew, which is television, but Mary McAleese feeding them, looking after them, uh, running around the house Martin talking to them so it's 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 great great backgrounds but Gay at one stage addresses that question about you know why don't I put my own beliefs on the table and he says I'm a referee and I think it's a good it's a good way for the likes of myself to to remind ourselves every now and again if you start losing the run of yourself you are a referee you're not there to give your opinions Interesting I found about the Mary McAleese one because I actually remember seeing it at the time and you just had this impression that after 14 years she let rip but again in the introduction when they got to the house Martin McAleese said to Gay I hope you've brought a whole box of tapes Yeah she did on Borden a lot she that was the first time I think she spoke about that incident with Cardinal Law she was president of Ireland remonstrated her in front uh, of a gathering and she said to him and she, uh, I'm quoting now excuse me I'm not a Catholic president I'm president of Ireland I'm a president of people who are Protestant Catholic Jewish agnostic Muslim Orthodox all sorts of people and it happens that I am a Catholic and I really don't think it's any of your business to tell me whether I am or whether I'm not either a good Catholic or a good president and uh, she says uh, pointedly and we had a really appalling discussion to put it frankly but that's which she reckons she won yeah. hands down yeah. though, oh she did win it hands down Martin Sheen was another one who impressed wasn't he because he, he was yeah. going through a very difficult yeah. time at that time his son Charlie was making headlines again so Gay actually thought he might even cancel yeah, the interview it, on him it was on that day wasn't it that Charlie ran out of two and a half men and was caught in a Las Vegas penthouse with God knows who and scoundrels as Martin Sheen refers to them uh, in in the piece but I just thought it was a very human piece and he's a deeply religious man and he's a deeply Catholic man and he brought those stories and where that came from and also he his he showed I think and it comes across in the piece how his faith had helped him and continues to help him deal with the situ- situations like Charlie Charlie is an adult Charlie is over 40 to say the least and Charlie is doing what he wants to do but I think uh, the word that, that epitomised Martin Sheen to me that came across was grace grace is a gift isn't it a great aura of grace and then as he was leaving Martin felt that Charlie was still sitting over the whole interview and he turned around to the crew and said will, will you just pray for him you know very genuine and and as Gay said, I think I think everyone did. Now there's 27 interviews here, yeah. all, all told. We can't get through them all. Pick a couple of your highlights, though, that, that struck you particularly. I thought the Geldof one was very strong, very witty, very um, very Geldof, very very Geldofian at this stage. Is that the word? Um, and also this just just the 
you know, saying to himself, which I, which I think is a is a, I think peculiar to a lot of people and a lot of people in the, in the business. He says, okay, he says, well, where, where are you are, you, are you happy? You know, because he has this curmudgeonly, um, and he said, actually, recently I realised, yes, I am happy, and that's the type of thing I think people will will get, especially at this time of year. Those beautiful paragraphs, really well crafted, I suspect, thanks to Roger again, probably in some cases better crafted than they actually came out. But the essence of them uh, is there. and um, So they certainly don't lose by being transcribed No, they gain, they gain. I actually believe, and this is what I said a few weeks ago, I actually thought the thing that surprised me from the, the, the book was that they've gained. And if there's one thing I want to say, don't be put off by saying, oh, I saw Bob Geldof and I saw Mary McAleese. I still think there's more in this. And the nature of this type of book as well is something you dip you dip in and you dip you dip out of. Brendan O'Carroll's interview, I think, is, again, very interesting. And he, um, he, he, he does, again, click into what Gay is looking for. Gay says, he knows this is not, primetime television though ironically it's becoming primetime television because the guests he's getting are just incredible um, but Brendan O'Carroll talks about his own lessons in life you know remember when you wake up and he's been through his his uh, demons as well he says you know when you wake up the world turns every day and you have to remember that and it could turn in a different way today than it turned yesterday and to try and say that to people who do feel the burdens or depression or whatever coming on at different times like the world will turn and it, it will turn in your favour at some stage. But the main thing is, when you're going through hell, keep going. Keep going. Don't pull down the shutters. So some life lessons there as well for over the Christmas period. It should be said that for each copy sold, a donation will be made to Our Lady's Children's Hospital in Crumlin. That's The Meaning of Life, the book of Gay Burns RTE television series published by Gillam Macmillan. Joe Duffy, thank you. Thank you, Arden. Finally tonight, we leave you with some seasonal music from Hector Berlioz's L'Enfance du Christ, The Shepherd's Farewell. It's performed by one of Ireland's leading choral ensembles, the award-winning Mornington Singers, and it's taken from their new CD, Noel, recorded live at Christchurch Cathedral. Before that, here's the poem The Meeting Place by Christopher Pilling. It was the arrival of the kings that caught us unawares. We'd looked in on the woman in the barn, curiosity, you could call it, something to do on a cold winter's night. We'd wished her well, that was the best we could do, she was in pain. And the next thing we knew, she was lying on the straw, the little there was of it. And there was this baby in her arms. It was, as I say, the kings that caught us unawares. Women have babies every other day, not that we're there. Let's call it a common occurrence, though, giving birth. But kings appearing in a stable with a... Is this the place? And kneeling, each with his gift held out towards the child. They didn't even notice us. Their robes trailed on the floor, rich, lined robes that money couldn't buy. What must this child be to bring kings from distant lands with costly incense and gold? What could a tiny baby make of that? And what were we to make of, was it angels falling through the air, entwined and falling as if from the rafters to where the gaze of the kings met the child's, assuming the child could see? What would the mother do with the gift? What would become of the child? And we'll never admit there are angels, or that somewhere between one man's eyes and another's is a holy place, a space where a king could be at one with a naked child, at one with an astonished soldier.
We won't be on the air next Friday evening, but we will be back on Christmas morning at eight with a programme from Dublin's Moving Crib. So please join us if you can with some very special guests. Agus Gajishin, Gajeshiv Slán.